Hey, it's Seeking a Plum. I recently echoed an episode on language and perception from early September. It included some segments from Patrick's The Great Everything, where he brought up some of Wittgenstein's theories on language. What followed were a bunch of really great calls that got me wondering and wanting to know more information. Since I recorded that episode in September, as time passed, I began to think that the questions I had asked were, well, not only silly, but really naive. And after I began to read more and learn more over the last few days, then I realized just how, well, misguided they were. Without getting into all of it, here's sort of a a brief synopsis. In one of the several uh, segments that Patrick had done around this time, he talked about a group of people who had no word for the color blue, but they had several words for various colors of green. For whatever reason, after listening to that segment, and maybe the others too, it got me wondering whether if we suddenly hear this new word, if that means now this new object becomes uh, visible to us or suddenly seen by us, or maybe we suddenly take notice of it. Now, I don't know if that's because of something that was specifically said in Patrick's segment or something that I randomly took off running with and came up with on my own. If you listened to the episode, that is uh, the one segment that was missing and I tried to summarize. I have no way of going back to re-listen to it and to determine where I diverged. But at this point, it's neither here nor there. I'll come back to these questions, but first, let's talk about Wittgenstein. So he had two theories. The first is one that he developed early in his life, and then he later threw out for the most part. And then the later one came, well, later in his life. To be overly simplistic, it seems like his first theory was very mechanical, very mathematical, very logical, and very rigid. If I'm understanding things correctly, every object, everything, every concept had a word, and you string those together to form sentences. And he talked about, uh, Wikipedia puts it this way, picture theory of language states that statements are meaningful if they can be defined or pictured in the real world. I'm not sure if this is a great example or not, but this is something that came to mind, is uh, the phrase crazy cats or crazy cat. Because when we say this about somebody specifically, we don't really mean that they're a cat, and we don't really mean that they are crazy in the psychological uh, sense. In fact, there might be multiple meanings to that uh, phrase, depending on who says it. So according to his original theory, if I'm understanding correctly, this phrase uh, would not really fit because it doesn't, it wouldn't explain exactly what I might mean if I use it to describe someone. And by not fitting, I mean it wouldn't be a meaningful phrase. It's kind of like the word cool. We don't always mean the temperature and we don't always mean, yeah, that's fun or awesome or whatever. Sometimes it's just a, yeah, okay, I get it. And, uh uh-huh, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. Another way of saying okay, maybe. And maybe these phrases and these various, you know, words are the reason why Wittgenstein decided to revisit his theories. 
he came to believe that meaning is use. A different Wikipedia page says, a common summary of his argument is that meaning is use. Words are not defined by reference to the objects they designate, nor by the mental representations one might associate with them, but by how they are used. Which kind of brings me back to the word cool. It all depends on how I use it, right? It's cool outside. It, that means something different than that's a really cool uh, car. Or when someone's telling me about something brand new they got and I'm like, cool. Or they're gonna go do something and I'm still responding, cool. Lulu Island shared a great website and podcast that covers a lot of Wittgenstein's theories called theliteracybug.com. I can't remember which it was, the site or uh, an excerpt from one of the podcasts that Lulu shared, but they talked about language being something generated from our environment and our experiences. There are obvious conclusions we can make from that sentence alone, from our upbringing to where we spend time, to things that have happened to us, but also um, I remember them talking about the construction site and even other situations where there's certain lingo and jargon that are used. Those words might mean one thing in that environment very specifically, but they might mean something very different outside of it. This is super generic, but I'm just thinking of the word block. How many different work environments can we think where that word means something different than, say, a city block or a block that a child might play with to build things with? Which leads me into the next thing I started wondering about. Just prior to these segments, Patrick did an episode on the making of meaning, which inspired me to do one as well. So I started wondering about how these views of Wittgenstein play into the whole idea of making of meaning. And here is a great way to sort of explain it. He did a thought experiment where he asked people to define the word game. Initially, that seems like it might not be a very difficult task to do, but when you start to think about it, it gets to be a little bit more complicated because how do you define the word game that encompasses things like chess and tag and duck-duck-goose, solitaire, poker? The point of the exercise wasn't to determine that it's impossible to define the word game. It was to point out that we don't have a definition and that we don't really need one. We all know what we mean by the word game. So today, when it comes to making of meaning, I think there are two ways to look at it. That based on our backgrounds, some words are going to have similar or the same meanings. And some are going to be different and make communicating a little, a little more difficult. But if we put in the effort, we, we can understand each other. And then there are some words and phrases that don't have very specific definitions, yet somehow we understand exactly what we mean or what someone means when those words are or phrases are used. I think that's a bit of a simplification and there's probably far more to it, but that's where I'm at with it today. Okay, so back to my questions about language and perception, those colors. Does language shape the way we think? So yesterday, I received a couple of calls from Mo Attack about how language uh, affects memory. I'll share his calls afterward. But try as I might, I couldn't find any reference to this study, and I am really curious about it. I want to know more. I've got questions about it. Instead, I found a different study that still talks about whether language shapes the way we think. 
So this study looks at a tribe of people and their Paraha language. They don't have any words or concepts of numbers. They have three words that mean around one, some, and many. The scientists did an experiment where they asked the tribe members to line up some balloons side by side to a number of spools of thread. They could accurately line them up number for number when they had something else to match against. If a number of spools were dropped into a bucket and then they were told to drop a number of balloons matching the number of spools into that same bucket, they failed, but they were in the ballpark. They either put in a lot or a few, depending on how many were in there, or dropped in there, I should say. They made educated guesses. I mean, if you think about it, and someone dropped roughly 16 to 18 spools into a bucket and said, now drop that many number of balloons in there, if you don't have the concept of numbers, how would you accurately go about doing it? I guess when thinking about this particular tribe, a lot is relative, right? You don't really need to know how many. And when it's a few, then they can line them up against others to make sure they get exactly what they need. Just for a second, think about how many numbers we have and how high they go. Now, here at this Wittgenstein quote, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. For me, that quote brings everything together. It wasn't about suddenly these new shades of colors coming into existence, or toddlers suddenly being able to see new objects or things, or dementia patients actually losing visual perception of things. I think that with language, we just gain a greater understanding of our world, whether that's internally, externally, and not just our immediate world, but other cultures and beyond our earth. Letting go of the idea that language is firmly rooted and is more fluid and nuanced is really quite well, I know I say this a lot, but it's beautiful. You know, I can see it as being a bit of an artistry for when you think of it as a single person and how they communicate, how they interpret things. But if you think about it in a larger scale, for instance, when you look at the dictionary and you look at any particular word, you will see it shows you the roots of the word and where it originated and when. To look at where that word began and where it is now or whether it even exists anymore what we've used in place of it that is, is in itself is kind of well it's really interesting as well to see how culture has changed how the world has changed it makes me wonder how many words or portions of words will we see i mean we won't see them but we'll be in the dictionary in some point in the future and say that they originated now or you know in the 20th century or the 21st century just thinking about that that kind of blows my mind do you think there will be any words that you know stand the test of time that will be around that long while it was fun to sort of daydream and imagine something unrealistic as 
poofing into existence when a word is suddenly learned, I think that the reality is far more interesting. It's sort of the way I see Earth. It, just bear with me. I have read I don't know how many fantasy and sci-fi books in my life, but you're always reading about these other places and these other lands and maybe the way the weather is and maybe the foliage, the animals, etc. But when you stop to think about our planet and how amazing it is, who needs some sort of fantastical other place when we live here? I mean, can you say lightning? So who needs this imaginary concept behind words when the artistry and nuance is so much more engaging? I do have a final question for you. Can you think of any concept or feeling or experience, anything that doesn't have a word for it, but that you wish it did? The reason I ask is that we sometimes hear ourselves say, you know that feeling when, or I wish there was a word for, but now I can't think of one of those instances off the top of my head. And I'm just, I'm curious, is there anything that you can think of? I just want to say thank you very much to the calls that came in yesterday or the day before because you sparked so many more questions that made me dig and just to have the the community type feel to this conversation was was fun and I I really enjoyed it. So I just want to say thanks. Thanks for listening, thanks for engaging, and I hope we do more of this. Articles, books, videos, etc. referenced in today's episode will be linked in the show notes found at medium.com forward slash at symbol seeking plum. Thanks again for listening.